And welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando. Today we have an amazing guest, super excited about this one, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He's joining us today to uh, dive deep into all sorts of fun topics. Uh, uh, Dr. Kaufman is a healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina. While a BS from MIT in molecular biology, Andrew has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has been qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts and held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. Dr. Kaufman has gained tremendous popularity in recent months, sharing a different perspective on the role of health and disease within the context of current pandemic fears. So let's welcome Dr. Kaufman to the show today. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, and thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on with you guys. I've uh, seen a lot of your material, and it's quite good. And uh, Bear and I have had a chance to uh, appear on a panel together, so it's, uh, it's really nice to be among friends. Yeah, Andrew, it was really fun uh, sharing the panel with you and Kelly the other day. Had a lot of fun with that. And um, thank you so much. I know you've been busy and, and uh, really making a splash out there. So um, you've been stirring up a lot of trouble out there, young man. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> Guilty as charged. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's just, um, it's so important to uh, speak the truth to this issue because the consequences of what's happening now are, are so serious and uh, unprecedented. So, you know, it's like um, the, the risks uh, are not, you know, not an issue. It's like you have to take the risk uh, to get this information out there so people can understand what is really going on and, and make the best decisions so that we can have a, uh, a nice free life in the future, you know, for, for us and for our children and the next generation. Yeah, you know, I spent, as, as you and I know, behind the scenes, I've shared a little bit with you, I specialize in biotrain medicine, which is uh, a type of medicine where you manage the, the internal ecology of the body and you don't treat disease and you don't attack microbes. And it's uh, so wonderful because I spent, a, a, you know, 40 years doing that and, you know, taking serious cases and people coming in and seeing me as a doctor of last resort. And uh, so when I would, uh, they come in on their viral meds and their antiviral meds and their, uh, you know, chemo for AIDS and, and that kind of thing. And, and then I tell them a whole different story, you know, it's like telling them that the moon landing didn't happen. So um, just the fact that you're out there going mainstream and you obviously are a very credible source with your background and and your education and so people are really taking note in the mainstream of things that um you know was a, a pretty hard sell for people like myself in years past so i'm really welcome your message and, and thank you for sticking your neck out there yeah well thank you for uh, for noticing and you know i mean i do have the mainstream credentials and that definitely helps a lot but I've really come to the same conclusions uh, that you were aware of many years ago, and I, I wish I had uh, learned about that sooner, but terrain medicine is the same model I believe to be accurate, and uh, in my consultation practice, I give people information about that, and I've used those principles uh, when 
when I've been uh, ill or members of my family, and uh, it's really helped uh, speed up the recovery. And uh, you know, these uh, illnesses have not come back, and it's been, you know, just wonderful to take this different, safe approach uh, that uh, just uh, works without the toxicity. Yeah. So um, I know you're multifaceted. You have a lot of other interests. You know, of course, you've been talking a lot about this whole COVID situation because it's what's got our attention. Uh, and, and I know your other interests, including, uh, you know, gardening and farming and, and, and spagyrics and, and all sorts of things. And and I think we all have a little bit of COVID uh, fatigue these days, uh, but it is an uh, extremely important message because we're not through it yet, not through the pandemic, but through the, we'll say, in my opinion, only the propaganda campaign. So I think it's maybe important that you share with our audience, and I think they probably have expectations of getting into that subject matter a bit, and you're, you're the, the best at talking about that. But if there's anything else you want to talk about, if, if time allows, uh, you know, love to chat about anything because we're a little bit different here. We like to be eclectic and, uh, you know, in our outlook of things. So uh, just go ahead wherever you want to start. Um, yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, uh, I'm also kind of getting fatigued uh, talking about viruses and uh, frankly, it's not really my main area of interest. Um, I've been, you know, studying uh, natural healing and the history of medicine and uh, and all of this kind of stuff for the past several years. And, um, you know, there's a lot to learn. And I have a long list of uh, reading materials, mostly books, um, to learn more about various aspects. Like these days, I'm very interested in water um, and trying to study that as much as possible. But the, you know, the situation in the moment dictates uh, some focus on what's going on. So I'll be happy to uh, fulfill my responsibility to uh, bring that message. And, you know, what, what I've really done is, um, it's not that um, uh, surprising or sophisticated. I've just taken the evidence that uh, has been put forward by the scientific and public health establishment and just looked at that from a scientific perspective. So there are, you know, currently, uh, I believe, uh, four papers uh, that have been published in peer-reviewed journals that, you know, claim to have isolated uh, a new virus and uh, say, actually, the conclusions of the papers say that it is associated with a disease or potentially associated with the disease or is implicated in a disease. But uh, none of them can conclude that there's a causal relationship uh, because the studies are not designed to be able to draw that conclusion. And in fact, what I found in looking at these studies is they are not really designed to be able to even identify a virus. Um, there are many ways to go about this. Uh, and there are certainly, I've talked about Koch's postulates, where are, which are a simple set of rules uh, by which the germ theory proponents have uh, suggested as a way to prove that a specific germ or microorganism causes a disease. But uh, none of those have been satisfied uh, for any uh, viral or allegedly viral caused disease. And if you look clearly at um, how they design these experiments, they don't follow one of the basic principles of experimental design, which is to separate variables so that you could test them independently uh, against whatever outcome you're looking for. So what they instead do is use impure samples with many variables combined, and then you know pick out the data that they want and 
say that it uh, proves this or that or the other thing. Like, for example, they, the only way that they said that this virus that they alleged to isolate is a coronavirus <clears throat> is that they sequenced the RNA, and uh, which came from uh, an undetermined source, an impure source. And then they said it was uh, almost 80% identical to another piece of RNA from uh, another coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-1 virus um, associated with the SARS outbreak in 2003. But that sequence was also uh, determined by an impure sample and the source of it is unclear. But having less than 80% sequence identity is really um, not, not very strong correlation because like the sequence identity between humans and chimpanzees is 96%, uh, yet we're very different from chimpanzees, uh, not in the same family at all, although there is some relation, of course, because we're related to all other creatures. But uh, so how can they say that, you know, it's like that virus with such a, a low um, identity uh, between the sequences? And, you know, then they claim to have um, isolated uh, viral particles and show them under the microscope. But if you once again look at the procedures, they're mixing this with other things, uh, especially foreign uh, mammal cells uh, and antibiotics, which creates exosome particles, which are, look just like viral particles under a microscope. But then they don't account for those viral particles when they show the microscope images. So, you know, what, what exactly are they showing? It's unclear because they have, once again, an impure sample with different types of particles, uh, and they, they make no account of this. So essentially what I've uh, been able to reason from looking at these experiments is that uh, there's really no proof that they've isolated anything that would be consistent with their definition of a virus, and they certainly haven't uh, come close to showing any uh, causal relationship between any new disease. And if you look more broadly at uh, the data on mortality and such, you'll see that there's really no evidence of a new disease either. So, you know, my interpretation and conclusion uh, with respect to, you know, looking at all this information is that uh, this pandemic is completely manufactured. Uh, it's like the biggest public relations uh, stunt that's ever been uh, perpetrated on us uh, in the history of, uh, of humanity. You could go as far as to say it's a false flag, really. <laughs> I mean, that yeah, is, uh, it's an operation. Absolutely. Um, so whether you want to call it a false flag, a psychological operation, a public relations stunt, I think those all kind of mean the same thing. But the false flag is uh, important because, you know, it is for the purpose of carrying out some policy, right? That, uh, you know, it's like a problem, reaction, solution type of scenario. And, um, you know, the problem is the pandemic, the reaction is fear, and the solution is uh, taking away our First Amendment and other rights. Order out of chaos, as they call it. So, um, yeah, that's a whole discussion topic we need to get into. Uh, but going back to the <clears throat> virus and the particles that they are seeing, uh, so what do you feel that those are? Where, what's that all about? Yeah, well, when you, uh, you know, they almost all have the same procedure where they take uh, cells like the most common ones are uh, Vero cells, which are uh, cells from the, the epithelium of monkey kidneys. And then they mix antibiotics with it. And then they mix lung fluid with it. And antibiotics are uh, known to induce exosomes. And exosomes are these small particles. They're little sacs of fluid. They contain genetic material, including RNA, just like they say the 
I'm sorry, SARS-CoV-2 virus contains. And they're secreted by cells uh, at a baseline rate, uh, at, a, at a low rate, but when they're mixed with things like antibiotics, and there are several studies that show this, they crank up the output of exosomes. And it's a response to basically a toxin uh, that the cell's exposed to, which the antibiotics, you know, I'm sure you covered this before, but anti means against and, and bios is life. So they mean against life. And they are toxic to virtually all cells, depending on the specific antibiotic. So this uh, basically induces the exosomes. So also, it's known that people who have uh, acute infectious illness, like a respiratory illness, which is what we're talking about, they also put out exosomes, and they've even been detected in the lung fluid. So you have two sources of exosomes in the sample that they're looking at, those that may be from the lung fluid of the, the sick individual, and then those induced by the antibiotics from the Vero cells. So when you take that sample and look under a microscope, uh, where are those exosomes? Because you know they have to be in there because you basically created a recipe to make exosomes. And like if you look at the exosome research, you'll see that there, <laughs> there are papers like that where they mix cells with antibiotics and then see the exosomes. So you know they're there, but when they show the images and discuss the findings, they never mention uh, that we differentiated this virus from the exosomes by X, Y, and Z factor. Um, and that would probably be, be possible to do if they um, took it into account. So since they haven't taken into account and you know that they're there, uh, the only conclusion I can reach is that what is being shown under the microscope are actually, actually those exosomes. And in looking at different photographs of exosomes and viral particles, um, they both have a range of, uh, you know, sizes and appearances. But if you look at the, the whole set of each that from the literature, you'll see that it's uh, really impossible to distinguish them visually. You would have to do some kind of uh, chemical test to show that they're distinct. And, that, and that's a, uh, through an electron scanning microscope, right? So that would be a stained black and white image? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. Go ahead, Bear. I was just going to say, I'm curious if, if anybody's done this um, with the dark field microscopy, because that was always my thing. When I was looking at Wuhan, even I under this was got, got caught under the spell of contagion because of the, all the crazy footage, right? Coming out of there, people collapsing and being locked, you know, sealed into their homes and hearing stories of, of, um, uh, you know, going through the air conditioning ducts and stuff. And so even I was like, whoa, my God, what is this thing? And so, uh, you know, following some channels, people were saying, well, you know, this and this and that and that. And I'm like, well, you know what? We're not going to know what this is until Dr. Lando gets somebody with these crazy symptoms, pulls their blood out and looks under a dark field mic microscope to see really what we can see here. And I don't know, has that been done at all? Well, is, you know, um, is there a dark field microscope with enough magnification to see particles on the 100 nanometer scale that's currently in existence? No, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, Royal Rife came the closest with his universal microscope, and I'd love to have that technology back. Um, so with dark field, because you lack the resolution, you, but you can't see things in other ways. And then there's things we could talk about later in the, you know, if we have time where you challenge the blood in certain ways in order to get byproducts from these elements that you can't see in great enough resolution. And then depending on the production of certain byproducts, you can make very good educated assumption, assumptions that we would always base clinical practices on.
Um, so what you're suggesting, though, if, if I hear you right, is uh, exosomes uh, are possibly a mechanism in the body to self-heal. Absolutely. And, and uh, there's good research to back that up, um, especially this one uh, study that, that um, I came across, and I think I presented this in one of my slideshows, but they had um, a, some kind of mammalian cell culture. And they mixed it with a bacteria that was producing endotoxins. And uh, bacterial endotoxins of this sort uh, work by basically boring holes in the cell that, that uh, they're exposed to, and then the cell would leak out the contents and result in cell death. So what they did is they took this culture of cells and divided it, and half of the cells they mixed it with something to induce exosomes, and the other half they didn't. And then they mixed both of those uh, divided cell cultures with the bacteria with the endotoxins. And what they observed is that the cells that they had induced exosomes survived and the other cells perished. And they actually captured some really striking images uh, of the endotoxin um, uh, molecules being taken up into the exosomes. And they, they colorized this uh, after the fact to, uh, to show the appearance uh, more clearly. And it was quite striking uh, to, you know, to see this. So I think this is um, one of the only experimental evidence uh, available that exosomes can actually take up toxins when they're in the extracellular uh, space. So this could you know, be a major function uh, that they perform and they could package it up so that it can't harm the cells and then hopefully be able to uh, remove it from the body entirely. And exosomes are the topic or the subject of a lot of research in stem cell therapy. Is that not right? Where um, the, they found that the exosomes, which are actually a product of endosomes, which is their invaginations of the cell. And then they, the, that the endosome picks up the RNA and then that creates the exosomes that are then expelled into the terrain. And then those in fact turn um, or induce a secretion of different uh, interleukins and things and stimulation of stem cell production. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yeah, well, that would make sense. And you know, you're right, they're produced inside the cell and they're in larger vesicles, sometimes called MVEs, uh, multivesicular endosomes, uh, which basically contain uh, uh, more than one of these exosomes, and then they you know, merge with the cell membrane at the right time and release all the exosomes uh, outside of the cell. And uh, they do contain genetic material. They, they've been shown to contain uh, DNA, both double and single-stranded. Uh, they've been shown to contain mitochondrial DNA, and they've been shown to contain RNA, including both messenger RNA and microRNAs. And on the exosomes, they have a receptor which is like a, a lock and key mechanism that uh, sends them to a target cell. So they'll have a special lock and it'll only fit the key of the target cell. So if you would find an exosome that has uh, the right uh, key for um, the central nervous system, you, or you could uh, go about this uh, type of procedure, uh, you know, if it was matching up with certain stem cells and then, the way the, the primary function of the exosomes is thought to be remote communication. And that information is actually contained in the genetic material. So they would uh, bind the target cell through this receptor interaction, the lock and key mechanism. Then they would insert their contents into the target cell and the genetic material could then be integrated into either the nucleus or the mitochondria where it could be expressed 
and then that could change the phenotype of the target cell. So it could be a vehicle to administer gene therapy, uh, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Um, there's another thing I'd like to get your thoughts on. In terrain medicine, one of the labs I do is, uh, one of the components is you look at cell debris, and when the cell debris is at a certain level, it just suggests that there's uh, a, a high turnover of dead cells and maybe out of balance with the production of new healthy cells. And when it reaches a certain point, we always theorized and had ways to measure actually that it reduced the milliamperage of the regular cells, which uh, would you know demean the, the health of the entire bioterrain. And, uh, but it also stimulate uh, um, um, mechanisms within the regular cells to start secreting surfactants and things with the interaction of this cell debris. So, uh, you know, which again was another, uh, um, you know, we don't have the, the type of studies to prove this. It's just based on functional medicine and the results and certain things we'd apply when we'd see that that seemed to work. And uh, so do you think that just regular uh, fragments from dead cells could also be confused with virus or is that just something totally different? Well, uh, Bear, that's a great question. And actually in the virology literature, going all the way back to the 1930s, like in especially uh, this uh, kind of landmark paper by Rivers, uh, where he laid out uh, an easier way to prove that uh, viruses cause disease, he even mentions that. Um, and there was a lot of debate because uh, early in the age of electron microscopy, there was a lot of details to work out. So they, you know, in disease, you're more likely to see uh, cellular breakdown and all kinds of different debris. And that would actually include exosome particles and apoptotic bodies and uh, necrotic cells uh, and such. And, um, you know, this, so this was uh, seen as artifact, but it's very difficult to differentiate from the signal. So this has always been a problem in looking uh, under the microscope at these images, how to determine what's what's this and what's that, what's a virus, what's debris, what's an exosome, uh, you know, and that was before exosomes were described as a distinct entity from viruses. Um, I think this also <clears throat> uh, plays out in the uh, current uh, papers because uh, the virologists doing these studies that I was describing earlier should be aware that um, other artifacts may be misinterpreted as viruses, but yet they don't uh, seem to account for this um, problem whatsoever. And so and are you talking about Dr. Thomas Rivers? Yes. In the 1930s, who the, the famous virologist for the Rockefeller Institute who waged war on the poly, um, basically polymorphism. And he was really ardent in proving monomorphism because that fits within the vi virology narrative, right? <clears throat> so when we factor in things like Bichamp was talking about and Royal Rife and people we've discussed with polymorphism and how these things can literally morph into other things that opens up a whole other bag of worms for these guys who really still want to be like posture and say a lot of stuff's dead inside or it's very mechanistic right and they're denying this kind of more divine um uh, apparatus within us absolutely and you know uh in in these uh, recent papers there's another uh, aspect to it that i was just uh, uh trying to to get straight in my head but they always describe, so they mix the lung fluid, right, with the Vero cells and the antibiotics, and then they wait a few days, and they always describe that there is tissue damage or cell damage, right? And they, of course, attribute that to the virus. 
But what that most likely is, is actually from the antibiotics. And so, so they're, you know, to- totally missing uh, what's going on. So they're, they're mistaking uh, a virus for an exosome and they're resp- re- mistaking the cell damage from a virus for the cell damage from antibiotics. They do and that they, a lot. They have no controls. They're not using a control in the experiment at all. Yeah, they seem to do that a lot where they look at the after effects of things they cause themselves. It's like the whole antibody thing where if you have the antibodies, then you're good. But then if you have the antibodies, you need a vaccine. It's like, what, do you, what side of the antibodies am I good? Like, Yeah, well, they, there's a long history of, of this that you know, the medical establishment refuses to acknowledge uh, what, what's called iatrogenesis, right? Which is when they cause the problem. So like going back to the 1800s when they were using uh, mercury and arsenic-based medications to treat virtually everything, they started getting uh, cranial neuropathies, right? Like Bell's palsy, yep. where the nerves in your head start to fail and you get facial asymmetry and all sorts of other issues. And instead of realizing that, oh, could this be from the to- neurotoxic mercury that I'm giving to the people, they just uh, assumed it was some new disease that was <laughs> popping up. President Lincoln uh, was famous for throwing fits because of the um, Quicksilver, the mercury that they were prescribing to him, um, which was they called Quicksilver, which was where the original term quacks comes from. I talk about this uh, a few times here. I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast, but you know, Nature Pass and people that are doing alternative from the mainstream are called quacks these days. But that term actually comes from the original Quicksilver doctors uh, in, the ter- in the late 1700s. This is from what I've been told. Um, and in the South, the, with their accent, they called it quacksilver. So they were called quacksilver doctors, which then by short were just called quack doctors and then just quacks. So the original quacks were the allopaths, were the ones that were using the chemical constituents. But due to the inversion of reality, now it's the nat- natural healers that are called quacks. Well, Mike, uh, that, that's a really important point. And, and actually... The way that got inverted to uh, naturopathic doctors was by a man named Morris Fishbein. Oh, was, yes. Uh, Good old the, Morris. <laughs> right. The, one of the first presidents of the American Medical Association. And uh, his thing was all about uh, uh, cutting deals with various pharmaceutical and food companies and magazines that uh, the AMA would officially endorse their products and then they get a cut of the uh, proceeds. But he, he himself, before he joined on to that effort, uh, which came out you know, after the Exner report and, and they changed over the healthcare system, uh, education system in the country, um, he was actually accused of being a quack in his practice. Um, <laughs> so if you check out Eustace Mullen's book, uh, Murder oh, by yes. Injection, um, it, it goes into some detail in that I think it even shows the uh, newspaper ad that called him a quack. That's amazing. Fishbein, we talked about, uh, Bear and I talked about in our Royal Rife Alpha cast. If anybody wants to go through that whole history, we, we discussed that uh, in depth uh, with his whole, um, you know, he basically went after Royal Rife and all that stuff. And um, that guy was a blatant criminal, really. Absolutely. I met up with Eustace Mullins uh, just in the last couple of years before he passed on and uh, he entertained us with a lot of good stories. He's uh, definitely a legend. And he's, of course, the one that inspired G. Edward Griffin, who we also uh, got in cahoots with, with some of our events we used to put on where he was a feature speaker as well. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of great pioneers out there. Yeah, so I think. Uh, uh, um, go ahead. 
I just want to say, I think that uh, Griffin's book, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, is one of the most important uh, things for people to read. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a landmark in and of itself. Here, here. Absolutely. So back uh, when I was in naturopathic college, I was in my 20s, and I used to sit in Friday assembly. We had a big auditorium where we'd have a guest speaker come from some part of the world. And uh, I always sat next to this old naturopath who was 95 years old. And I'm in my 20s at that point, and he used to tell me all these stories about his life uh, as a naturopath back in the early 1900s when they were the prominent doctors of the day. And uh, then they were summarily persecuted, thrown in jail. Some of them even lost their lives, their house burned, their families harassed. Uh, schools were shut down. Uh, legislative uh, bodies were compromised uh, so that they actually negated the, the ability to uh, get a naturopathic license in the first place. It was a four-story uh, library of natural healing, uh, one of the most extensive libraries of the sort ever to exist in Philadelphia. That was burnt down to the ground. And this was, of course, all coinciding with the um, uh, with the burgeoning petrochemical industry and the Rockefellers and, and their whole you know, form of medicine. So I got a, a good bird's eye view just from, or firsthand experience from this guy is really fascinating. You know, uh, I'd, if it's okay, I'd like to just kind of go back to another piece of the microbe situation there. You know, we talked about virus and there's another thing I hear, well, I'm, I'm very familiar with it because I watch it under the microscope for years, but uh, my original training and trained medicine was from the German schools with Gunther Enderlein and then I studied with uh, Gaston Naissance. And of course, we talk about the cyclogeny of, um, of organisms that actually live in our body and our body's natural recyclers. And in Germany, they call them protids and Gaston called them uh, somatids. Um, but in either event, these are uh, just single proteins apparently that then differentiate. And I watch this with my own eyes into you know, higher valence organisms that then do particular functions in the body. Now, in the uh, discussions I hear in the public these days, some people are s suggesting that those proteins they think are actual, you know, maybe what we're mistaking for virus. I don't think so myself. Uh, I don't know other than just what I see. I think virus are more related to cell fragments and exosomes. Um, again, I have no way to prove it except through therapies based on those assumptions. Uh, and the proteins, I believe, also are triggered um, to go through their various functional cycles by these cell fragments or exosomes that also trigger their production to go into a particular, um, you know, phase of activity to also help heal the ecosystem. So do you have any thoughts or experience with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, let me say that when I first uh, saw uh, a video under the dark field microscope of this uh, cyclogeny process that you're talking about, I was just blown blown away i mean it was like i i uh you know i had to pinch myself to see if what i was seeing was real because it's so uh different than anything i ever learned and i think it's really important to note that all of the microscopes used by the medical establishment from you know from research through clinical work in every sector only can look at dead tissue so they can never observe the behavior of these cells. And so they would never see actually microbes budding out of our own cells, uh, which, is, which is what happens. I mean, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes now. 
And uh, I encourage other people to look at it because, uh, you know, this is uh, the true the true science of reality of what goes on in our bodies. I think um, it's hard to say what exactly the relationship between exosomes, viruses, and somatids are, but looking at some of the work of Stefan Lanka, who talks about uh, bacteriophages, or uh, which are you know uh, the the so-called viruses that uh, form in bacterial cultures, and these so we know about like uh, spores from bacteria, right? When environmental conditions are not right for growth. Uh, the bacteria can form a uh, spore, which uh, protects it from the environment, uh, from extremes in the environment, and puts it into like a stasis, kind of a hibernation type of state. And then later on, when the environmental conditions change, it can basically go back into an active uh, growing form. And so he uncovered some experimental evidence that phages actually may be related to that and may be a form where the environmental conditions are even harsher. And that that he, there's research that an entire bacterial colony can, can be generated from a phage. So possibly this is what we're seeing in the, in the somatids is that it's actually you know, similar to a spore or a phage state. And, then, and it probably contains some of the genetic material um, in addition to the protein, although I don't know if it's been chemically characterized, uh, you might uh, know more about the research on that. And then it can basically, as you said, differentiate, uh, which would be the term they would use in mainstream uh, microbiology, into uh, more mature uh, species that would be, you know, recognized by any common uh, microbiologist under the microscope, you know, like uh, Staphylococcus or Clostridium or Candida, uh, you know, any of those species. But it's a, it's a really fascinating field and something that I, I definitely need to learn a lot more about. It's, I, it's definitely a powerful experience. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. I was just going to say, can I just say one thing that's funny about the, uh, the, the microscopes and such is talk about it as above, so below. Everything is in relation to the mainstream is about dead. From the corporations to their microscopes. It's all about death. What is going on there? Anyways, I wanted to throw that out there because it just hit me like a ton of bricks that even their microscopes look at dead things. Well, you know, I am always aware of uh, some of the seven hermetic principles applying to healthcare. And uh, so it's great that you bring, bring that up. Uh, definitely a welcomed analysis. So I was going to go into the, the next part of the discussion, um, and this is great talking with you, Andrew, because I rarely have people to bounce things off of, and I really respect uh, you know, your thoughts on things. Um, it's, it is a powerful experience to see these with your own eyes. In fact, when I had patients um, you know, in my clinical years, the first thing I do on an initial visit is I show them their blood under the screen. And uh, we, uh, based on what I saw on the terrain, which I, you know, with an educated eye would understand, you know, things that are the source of their issues, uh, you know, we would key in on those and we would see these morphological changes right before their eyes, you know, virtual shape shifting of one creature into another just within moments. And uh, one of the techniques that I always used because you know, if you think about terrain medicine, you're talking about a condition in the environment that will then trigger the necessary changes in order to create those, um, you know, normal equalizing effects that the body as a self-maintaining, self-correcting organism, uh, you know, triggers into effect in order to heal itself. 
And so, uh, you know, with the, the original German school, we understood that there are different families of protids or somatids. And for instance, if you have a, a strep throat and you culture streptococcus, what you're really talking about is a seed, uh, you know, that we recognize as penicillin notatum that then differentiates through different phases of activity into an eventual, eventual bacterial uh, phase that we call, um, you know, streptococcus could be staphylococcus, but we actually know which, uh, you know, families these belong to and what they differentiate from. So when I uh, looked at blood, what I did is I prepared at least a dozen slides and understanding that the blood would have the environmental conditions that would then trigger certain families to progress in certain ways. And what I do is with each different blood slide is I'd subject it to an isopathic solution of the actual proteids from different families. Could be aspergillus, mucor, you know, notatum, uh, penicillin frequentins, any number of things. And then if those particular sides showed uh, byproducts of what we knew were associated with uh, a particular family, then we could make, again, a good assumption that uh, the environmental conditions were triggering the, the progression of that particular organism, and therefore certain needs were necessary, which would suggest uh, you know, certain conditions in the body that then we could go ahead and treat. For an example, if you, uh, you know, put that developer, you know, so-called on the, the cell and you see a bunch of fibrin pop out, uh, then you knew that you're probably looking at, um, you know, an environmental condition that needed the preponderance of mucoracemosis, which would, you know, put out those kind of fibrin elements that, um, you know, would, uh, you know, help in the whole blood clotting mechanism and do a number of things that mucor is associated for as far as a functional organism in the body. The flip side to that, is when a body has gone south far enough, then those um, triggering mechanisms or those pleomorphic progressions get hung on a biological plateau. And in, in other words, they may lack the resources or be uh, impeded in some way, even with pharmaceutical drugs or so forth, that are not allowing it to do its full function. So they stay at that biological plateau for an extended period. And then that level of cyclogeny actually create, becomes problematic. So then we would, uh, you know, uh, do measures that would, um, you know, kick the body off that plateau by providing all the resources it needed to go full circle. And then at the same time, uh, provide the protid variety that would, you know, you see them under a microscope, just kind of swim up and explode the higher valences. And then at the same time, reseed with the the, you know, the seed organisms, which is, uh, you know, actually a real form of immuno, uh, immunization, you could think of it that way. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole branch of medicine there that should really be looked at by the conventional system. And then, of course, people that, um, you know, experience that and, and practice it at a high level, you see conditions readily resolving themselves, not because you're curing a disease or even trying to treat, it, uh, treat a disease in the first place, but just like a farmer, you realize it's all about the ecosystem. And the most important thing about the ecosystem is managing the microbial populations. So um, anyway, that's, I guess, more of a statement than anything. But uh, any, any thoughts on any of that? 
Yeah, Bear, that's uh, really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'd like to learn more about how that test works and uh, what is the uh, extent of the information that you can glean from it. But it's really fascinating that you brought up the example of Mucor, because uh, I used to work in uh, cancer medicine earlier in my career. And basically all of the patients I was working with, I was working in in an inpatient setting in the hospital, were um, treated with chemotherapy. Uh, high dose chemotherapy because I was wor- working mostly with people with acute leukemia. And so their immune system and various other parts of their body were extremely damaged uh, from the chemotherapy drugs, right? You know, we all know that uh, you stop growing hair, your hair falls out, right? That's because it's toxic to uh, the hair follicles and many other parts of the body as well. And in that state, there would be times when mucor would be called upon. Um, and it would generally go into the sinus area um, and cause that uh, an infection there. And it probably was uh, stuck, as you mentioned, um, because the, uh, the terrain was so damaged from the chemotherapeutic drugs. And they also were probably given prophylactic antifungals, uh, you know, like uh, fluconazole. And so the mucor was, if you detected it uh, in a patient, it was like a, an extreme emergency. Like you had to call the surgeon like within minutes because uh, if it was left to go, it would basically eat, eat up your face. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really scary thing. I remember the first time there was a possibility of this in a patient. And, uh, you know, I didn't quite react fast enough because I was really unfamiliar and I got uh, stern talking to so if the terrain is so damaged, uh, you know, from these uh, toxic uh, exposures, then really our pleomorphic uh, recycling system is, is not able to function properly and, and it goes out of whack like you described, but then the medical establishment blames the organism for causing the problem uh, instead of looking at the real cause. Yeah, and the the mucor, as we mentioned, one of its jobs is to uh, play a role in the whole thrombocyte blood clotting mechanism in the body. But when it goes to one of those higher valences and gets on that biological plateau that we're describing, then you have a preponderance of that fibrin material that it makes, and it uh, makes the blood overly viscous. That severely compromises um, blood circulation. It agglutinates the blood cells. And, uh, you know, one of the best remedies of all for people that are worried about blood clots and strokes and all those sorts of things, instead of taking baby aspirin, if they took B or, or something worse, uh, you know, rat poison, for instance, then yeah. uh, that we call, yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, if you took the protein variety of mucor, it would uh, automatically um, neutralize that and return the viscosity of the blood to normal and uh, you'd get a wonderful immune, immunomodulation effect at the same time. But uh, any of these organisms uh, can create great problems. Aspergillus is gonna create similar effects, uh, you know, in the, in the lungs and in the um, lymphatic system, you know, by way of what it normally does functionally, but if it gets uh, overstaying its welcome on a certain valence, then, you know, you have equal problems, just like you might have a, uh, you know, a problem with staphylococcus, it won't go away, same thing. And of course, a lot of these preparations 
uh, some doctors were starting to catch on that, wow, these are better than antibiotics, you know, and they started using things like preparations of notatum and, and so forth and get good effects. But now you, it's hard to find in the country. They shut down all the distribution channels right. and, what's, and yeah. So. What's ironic, Bear, is I just got an email from uh, Symbiopathic, which is still, oh, yeah. right? Um, and yeah. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if that's illegal or not in the States, but, um, I got on that and that, so those are actual isopaths, right. And stuff that you can get. Still. Yeah. Those are, uh, they sell in the drop form, which is the weakest solution that you can get. Uh, but they're, they're, they're good because, uh, at home you can use them and, you know, not get yourself in any problems to capsule form or the next strength up suppository to the next. And, best ones uh, for clinical situations where you want real quick results, you want to have injectables. And those are the first ones they got rid of as far as, you know, being able to get them in the country here. So when you're so, saying, uh, when you're saying injectables, are you talking injecting into the blood or into, or how does that work? I am intermuscular, deep intermuscular injection is we found the most effective in clinical. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with, with going back to the virus thing, you know, we look at the classical pictures of viruses, right? And you see Ebola virus, you see, which is like a little snake looking thing. You see all these different pictures they have. And of course, we talk about how these are mostly graphic interpretations um, from what they're seeing with the electron microscope. But how do we, Andy, what, what do you think, uh, Andrew, in terms of your theories on these different images? Yeah, well, I haven't uh, specifically looked at Ebola, but if you look at the uh, viruses that have been isolated from lower single-celled organisms like uh, amoeba or algae or bacteria, um, and, and by the way, in those uh, papers, they actually did successfully isolate these particles and purify them uh, through a standard technique where you just uh, take the uh, culture of the microorganisms that you suspect there are, are viral particles and you filter them through a small membrane because the particles are much smaller than the cells. And then you can uh, use a density gradient centrifuge to um, uh, put them all together in a tight band that you can easily uh, take out and look under the microscope. And uh, there's a, an excellent uh, article on Stanford University website uh, where you can see lots of pictures of these actually. Um, and they have very unique geometric shapes and structures. Um, and that are unmistakable. Like as soon as you see this, you, you know exactly what it is if you've seen it already. And um, actually some of them are quite beautiful. Um, the viruses that I've seen that are alleged to be human are all basically just circular vesicles, uh, which have indistinguishable appearance uh, from exosomes. So I'd have to look at, you know, Ebola specifically, but, you know, Ebola is, uh, um, kind of a, another big subject that we could talk about, but I, I don't think it's, uh, it's real either. Yeah, we're getting back to language again in some respects too, and what they define things as. One thing I've heard about Ebola is that the symptoms that people were experiencing that were attributed to Ebola were actually created by formaldehyde being deliberately put in water supplies in Africa. Have you heard, ever, ever heard that? No, but that's certainly the kind of thing that uh, could, uh, you know, cause uh, lots of health problems. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if we look at if we look at polio, you know, um, I mean, 
there's so so many interesting things about polio, and I definitely recommend the book uh, "The Moth and the Iron Lung" by Forrest Moretti, uh, where he goes into this in detail. But um, the polio outbreaks occurred in the summer, and it, it coincided with uh, the this invasive moth species called the gypsy moth, which was uh, decimating the uh, plants and many of the summer crops uh, in New England. And they began uh, using a untested uh, pesticide called lead arsenate. And this was used pretty much indiscriminately. Um, and people you know, didn't use any protective equipment or even gloves. And they were dousing this all over their uh, summer fruits and vegetable crops, uh, as well as trees. And they had you know, whole families would go out and douse everything with this stuff. It was like a big activity. And uh, lo and behold, like the same time of year when this activity was going on was when you'd start to see the annual polio cases. Uh, and you know, poliomyelitis, by the way, doesn't refer to a virus, it refers to a specific disease of the uh, spinal cord that has a, a very characteristic uh, lesion when looked at under the microscope. Um, and uh, there's really never been any uh, proof that any virus uh, causes this. And it pretty much uh, went away right after these toxic pesticides uh, stopped being used widely. And at the end of the uh, epidemic of polio, actually, they switched from lead arsenate to DDT. And the clinical characteristics of the illness also changed uh, during that time period, but were still uh, largely neurologic uh, in nature. And then after DDT, was taken out of widespread use. Um, basically, the, the cases went back down and almost disappeared. And that was uh, a couple of years before the Sabin <laughs> vaccine was available. Unbelievable. I yeah. mean, basically, it was like another the- form of meningitis, right? And they just reclassify these things and call it something new. And then they put it in their books that the doctors then have to, it's a language thing, then they have to call it that. <laughs> Go ahead, Pear. But, but that opens up the next important part of the germ theory discussion is how do you account for epidemics? I grew up in the polio generation and actually, you know, had a friend with an affected arm. And, uh, you know, what I've learned since, of course, is that when you have a herd exposure to a toxin, as you're suggesting, then you will have a, a pandemic of internal reactions in people's bodies that are going to try to get rid of this organism or, or this toxin, I should say. And um, you can also go deeper into energetic uh, issues that are recognized in, for instance, disciplines of homeopathy where they bring up uh, uh, ideas of miasm and things that are working on other levels that similarly create uh, conditions where entire races of people let alone populations of people will be prone to holographically, um, let's just say, mirroring, image, uh, mirroring conditions in their biology uh, relative to things that are going on on other levels. And then that, of course, gets into uh, other things we can talk about, like New German Medicine, who that took it to a more of an evidence-based understanding of what's going on on that level. So uh, well, that's, that's the, the biggest question I get all the time is, well, how do you uh, account for the fact that everybody's getting this or that I was yeah. just talking to Mike yesterday, he had a sore throat and I woke up with a sore throat today. Can I, can I say one thing real quick? Cause I've been re- researching a lot and a- Andrew, I know, I, I would assume you're probably aware with your psych, you know, you, you went to school and you're an MD as a psychiatrist, correct? Yes. 
Okay, so um, you know, in the seventies, this became big with psi research, and um, I don't know if you're familiar. This was in the early two thousands, I believe. Um, it's uh, uh, psychologist Roger Nelson, uh, and he worked with Dean Radin too, and they created he created what was called the uh, uh, the Global Consciousness Project, and they worked with um, you know, as random uh, random uh, number generators. And what they found is that uh, there was a deep connection between all human um, consciousness in affecting these um, these random number generators, and and it relates to quantum mechanics and it you know and how location doesn't matter. And what they're finding and they're showing these in these you know hard science studies is that human consciousness is connected, and we can actually fundamentally um, change uh, different aspects of reality just with our consciousness. So if we're talking about, and, and what they did with these studies, they did a really cool one at Burning Man, which is close to my heart, uh, where they, um, they took these random number generators, which were, there's a, a number of different types, which are, um, are built so that they're very, very random. And they have a specific random randomization, like 25% or something like that. Um, and then they, they went to Burning Man with these. And they, what their theory was is that in Burning Man, uh, at the end of the event, the week-long event, they'd have this, the famous burning of the, of the man. It's a you know, tall uh, wooden statue that they burn, and everybody comes together, and it's a big kind of group experience. And their theory was that these random number generators would be affected by all of these people in one place. It was like 20,000 people or 60,000 people at Burning Man, and that they would see spikes. And so, of course, um, they, they did the test and um, they found that there was definitely a, a, a very large degree of change that was something like one in some hundred million chance of this happening or something like that that Dean Radin was able to quantify. And they actually did this three years in a row where they found the same effect. And th this study has been done in major universities uh, across the country and the world. And so my point in bringing this up with contagion is that if we have large global events happening where we now are all connected on the internet and connected on multimedia and, and, and with the news outlets and stuff, pushing these concepts and with what we know with what Bear was just bringing up with new German medicine and the way that our physiology works with pleomorphism, my, you know, it makes sense that contag this type of contagion could come with where we see these physiological effects from specifically our consciousness manifesting this as a, as a group. Yeah, Mike, this is a, a really interesting idea, and you're reminding me of several other um, uh, events or research that also talk about this. Uh, you know, one thing is that um, the uh, Transcendental Meditation uh, Organization, they had an event where they gathered, uh, you know, as many meditators as they could to Washington, D.C., and they, I think they had a couple of thousand people. Yes. And they, they all meditated at the same time with an intention of peace, and uh, what happened for a few days is that the crime rate, rate uh, dropped substantially. Yes. Right. So through their conscious intention, uh, they had an effect on other people. Um, now, that was done in, a, in one geographic uh, area. Right. So not remotely. But then there's also research from uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who, you know, has talked a lot about scientific studies that don't fit with the, the main scientific paradigms that of the 20th century. And uh, this, this experiment was done where he had a, a group of subjects and they were supposed to identify, I think, four uh, people that they knew uh, who could live anywhere in the world. And um, those people were all 
uh, notified by the uh, by the um, whoever was conducting the experiment. I think it was this was Sheldrake's own work, and they picked a time, and the the test subject was told that you were going to receive an email from one of these four people um, uh, at this specified time. So five minutes before, you're going to get an email asking you to predict who's going to call uh, or email. So what they did is that they told they contacted the person like you know 10 minutes in advance and said you're the one who's going to send this email this morning so they were already thinking about it and then after they were thinking about it and had that intention uh the person was able to predict with a pretty pretty robust accuracy um who was going to well be well above chance uh who was going to be sending the email and what they found is that the geographic proximity was no factor at all. So if yeah. they were on the other side of the world, they'd be just as likely to be predicted. But the one factor that did predict uh, the accuracy rate was actually how close they were to each other on a sort of emotional relationship level. And the closer they were, the more likely the test subject was to get the correct answer. So, and then you also have uh, things like remote viewing, uh, where uh, people, and this was done actually under the government's uh, funding um, through a special research building at Stanford University for a long time. There's still a lot of people doing this and teaching this technique where you would, you would basically learn the skill where you would be able to see someone somewhere in the world and view their surroundings, where their location is, what's going on, almost as if you're seeing it through their eyes. And um, this was uh, turned out to be quite accurate in many cases, so not 100% and not always, but they used this technique, for example, to locate a, uh, uh, an airplane that crashed in the jungle in Africa that was uh, like a needle in a haystack to find. And they had remote viewer who was looking at maps of the general region, which was, you know, hundreds of uh, square miles. And they were able to uh, focus in on it and, and they were able to locate the uh, fallen plane. And there are many other examples like that that have, are in the, you know, uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, uh, disclosures or uh, from uh, accounts of the participants in the program. So you can combine all these things with the social science research also that looks into, uh, you know, social contagion where, you know, like you're uh, with a group of people and someone yawns and then all these other people start yawning or uh, how women have their menstrual cycles uh, synchronized when they develop close relationships. And we don't really you know, fully understand uh, from a scientific experimental perspective the, the mechanism by which this kind of communication occurs, but it totally makes sense uh, if you think about how humans operate. You know, we are social creatures, we live in communities, and it's imperative that we exchange information about our environment with each other in order to uh, be prepared to face uh, changing environmental conditions. Well, so, yeah, I, I was going to say too, it reminds me of the thing with the dogs, even it, with that famous video where the dog knew the owner was coming back. I don't know if you ever saw that, but uh, the owner, he, he put a camera on his dog and um, he would be, you know, miles and miles away heading home and then the dog would come to the door waiting for him. And there was an energetic informational field going between even the, the dog and his owner. So I think, yeah, we, this is what we talk about a lot and Bear can chime in uh, on this idea of informational fields tying into our DNA and all this and that there's just so much more than the reductionist materialists um, really are apt to, uh, 
to acknowledge. I think uh, the missing link in all this is Walter Russell because he's uh, the best person that I know of that um, really created a whole understanding of how waveform mechanics works and that in fact this whole simulation that we think of as our lives and our bodies is um, a byproduct of that and all of the, you know you were talking about remote viewing uh, Andrew and if we just think about it well you and I are remote viewing right now and it's done through a technology as we think of it of course we believe it's real because i have a physical box sitting on my desk but we're the ones that conceived that in the first place and what is bringing you to my desktop they're informational fields they're waveforms that's all it is now compared to this box that i'm looking at the human potential is infinitely more extensive and more capable and so maybe these technologies are actually telling us that we don't even need the box in the first place. And, and in fact, they're just uh, little training wheels or stepping stones, so to speak, to get us to the point where we can throw away our cell phones and computers and just transmit these um, informational fields firsthand without the intermediary technology, which is actually quite crude compared to ourselves. Yeah, that, that's uh, pretty amazing to think about, Bear, that, uh, you know, we have all these abilities that uh, we haven't really acknowledged or recognized in ourselves. And I wonder how much of the, uh, you know, sort of way that we grew up under uh, mind control programming and, uh, you know, drinking fluoridated water and things like that have uh, really impaired our ability to realize fully uh, our potential in this realm. Yeah, we're talking about digital versus analog once again, too, and how the digital mechanism is constantly being pushed on us right now because that is, a, that is literally a bastardization of reality, right? It's breaking up reality into an incomplete waveform where the analog waveform is all the little nuance that is there. And that is the true future that we talk about a lot is going back to this analog technology where it is the actual real reality versus the simulacrum, which is what digital is, which is what, you know, there's not saying that digital is completely bad. I mean, we're using digital technology to, to talk right now, but there is a, a weird, a weirdness to digital that uh, isn't natural. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Or I don't know if he was a doctor, but Robert Monroe, uh, in the 60s and 70s, who, who did uh, a lot of exploration into out-of-body and remote viewing. And he actually has the Monroe Institute, where you can go and learn this stuff. I believe uh, it's in Virginia. Uh, anyways, um, I read his book, and I've been following it. And so one thing that if, you, if people out there really want to start getting deeper into this, you can experiment with yourself. You can teach yourself how to do this stuff and have these experiences and do your own scientific experiments in these other, um, you know, with these, uh, these realms or whatever you want to call them and start working on uh, your dream state and leaving your body and, and doing this stuff yourself and start validating these concepts because it'll open up, you know, we need to be our own investigators and we need to be doing this ourselves so that we can start pushing the boundaries because it seems to me that the digital state that we're moving towards is not going to do it. And science, just there are some amazing people in science that are pushing these boundaries and doing this, but they're also, as we've been discussing today, are very restricted in their materialism. 
and they're reductionist mindset. And so they're missing, as Bear says a lot, the other half of the equation. So we can do this ourselves, though. And one of these things I uh, highly recommend checking out Robert Monroe. He's passed away, but his institute and what they're doing, because they're doing amazing work in healing and science and, and all this stuff in terms of what you're talking about, Andrew, and with, um, you know, the out-of-body stuff. Because I feel like that's a major missing um, point to what science should be looking at. Uh, and uh, kind of delving more into this analog space of reality and, and the powers that we have to really start moving towards that direction because that's where we need to be going. The digital realm that this, the other side that, of the, you know, that they're pushing us towards is only going to uh, continue to move towards this kind of transhumanistic agenda or whatever that's going to take away from uh, our ability as, these, as divine spark to really um, forge a path towards freedom and, and awareness and true health and reality that we know is something that is amazing and something we all, I think, want to see. And that's my spill. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's really true. I mean, that there's uh, so much more that we're capable of that we, we really don't realize. And, you know, there are so many ways that this has been uh, sort of changed uh, in terms of our common uh, uh, understanding of the meaning, like even something like magic, for example. I think magic traditionally was really referring to a sort of alchemical process uh, where we can uh, transmute ourselves into something better uh, by going through uh, the process of change. And that sometimes that can reveal properties that are you know, beyond the mundane. And now this has been uh, reformulated to mean sleight of hand or trickery, right? Which uh, may be uh, related to uh, mercury, actually. Um, but, uh, but, but it takes us further away from realizing our, our full capacity. And, um, you know, that's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, I don't know what the limits are myself because I haven't uh, developed this enough uh, personally to, to have these experiences. But I imagine that uh, the limits are quite high. Yeah. And the uh, original scientists were alchemists, if you go back a little ways, and chemistry was a bastardization of that. And the original alchemists, of course, looked at uh, things introspectively first and then extrapolated into that into empirical observation to see the results of what was going on internally. And uh, the reductionist, revisionist uh, you know, uh, agenda, whatever you want to call it, took that whole inside, uh, you know, introspection out and externalized everything. So now we're caught 100% in the Maya of after effects. And when you go to waveform mechanics, um, you know, that's very understandable more in a, it, it becomes a lot less abstract in that the, the whole uh, mechanics of how those electrical vectors create this simulation in the first place. So um, I think what we are having is an alchemical resurgence. And that's why I see out there, a lot of people are starting to talk about uh, spagyricism and, you know, spagyric uh, medicines. And I've used those, uh, you know, for many years in my practice and they just work better because you're, the whole process allows you to get the complete uh, full spectrum informational fields from all levels of the reality of a botanical specimen. But the alchemists knew that that wasn't just a, a manner or a method to create herbal tinctures. It was a whole model for life and what we're doing here on this planet in the first place. 
which is um, you know externaling our externalizing ourselves for introspection and looking at the parts and then purifying the parts and putting them them back together into an elevated whole on the on the return journey and um, you know it's encouraging to me because I I do see a renaissance of that sort of thinking coming back but now in a, in a more refined level in that the mysticism, you know, that uh, I had to learn in Chinese medicine, for instance, that was based on uh, metaphoric terminology from different cultures and, and then reading, uh, you know, uh, old school books on alchemy, you know, that, that were kind of guarded and, and, and had a lot of mysticism. Now it's, it's all out in the open and it's just pure science. And I think what it's causing is a reconciliation between the two hemispheres, you know, our right and left brain and unifying them or, or maybe uh, better saying, um, uh, you know, a unification of our heart and mind so that we're not just caught in one level of reality. Yeah, there's a great image uh, that I shared with you, Bearer, last year of, uh, from the 1600s of an alchemist laboratory. And um, it's very fascinating to see just how cool it was, but just how the, the um, interjection of sound and audio also into this. And, you know, we had Sherry Edwards on recently, and she's a, a master, a world-class audio healer, sound healer. She's, she has, she's very unique in her ability, what she hears. But once again, this was an analog technology that they integrated in with plants and with other things. And there was just a higher understanding of a lot of these aspects that has been, we've delineated from because of our, our schooling and we're not learning about real history and real science and everything is digitized. You know, the chemistry, I would say even is like a digital variation of alchemy, right? Where they're just taking the constituents and the pieces in the same way in a digital piece of music, they take the pieces or in digital codes, the ones and zeros versus the full wave. Um, and uh, you look back at these, this lab, and I know this is something that we're focusing on you building out is your new lab where we have, uh, we can take some of these technologies and interface them with Walter Russell and create kind of the new, an institute where we're exploring these new concepts of science in a way that, um, can really be powerful and who knows maybe uh um invent things where we can leave our body and and come together in a in a another field if you will and uh do some healing together or explore um you talked about bringing out your uh you know uh, with sherry edwards technology sound healing room and stuff and integrating that with spagyrics in a way i mean these are really fun things that we can look into right and um kind of uh, mess around as the new type of alchemist. Yeah, well, we discussed on uh, our show with Sherry, you know, she came out, her and I got together in my old clinic in uh, Hawaii back in, oh, maybe the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, she uh, hadn't quite developed all her technologies at that point. But what we did develop uh, were sound generators and the ability to analyze a person's voice and then uh, isolate those sound frequencies that we could discern from a, a voice recording that would then change a, in a, a person's entire physiology. So with my work with her, we did construct a, a very sophisticated sound room. Now we can do even better. And of course, one of the things we're doing in addition to 
developing a whole new farm and a, and a new location here is setting up a laboratory for, you know, uh, uh, a lot more advanced levels of uh, uh, investigation and, and uh, uh, manufacturing of next level plant medicines, but also a, a separate building that uh, I already have the blueprints for. I've written them up years ago uh, that would create, uh, you know, a whole acoustic room that would go way beyond what I was able to do in my clinic all those years back. Sound frequencies, of course, are exactly what Walter Russell is talking about. Sound is one of 18 dimensions on a waveform. And again, those are the electrical vectors coming exactly from our consciousness. So another level, uh, Andrew, that um, you know, we're talking about techniques in bioterrain medicine. We don't confine ourselves these days just to uh, biological remedies and looking at microbes, but we can measure firsthand with instruments, uh, the, the analyze all these dimensions along a waveform that Walter Russell talked about and all the increments within each of those 18 dimensions, find out where the distortions are. We know why those distortions are there. That's another story. And then uh, use all manner of modality, including the direct broadcasting of frequencies to bring symmetry back and then watch physiology change. So that's where we're going. That's where we should be. And Walter Russell accurately described the age that we're now in. That we, we should be calling it the age of transmutation because we no longer, like the alchemists knew back then, but didn't you know, maybe have the, the abilities that we have now. Uh, they knew that it was an inside job, but now we have a technological assistance. Of course, the technology that we're using is not seducing us into more of an external situation where we think, oh, that's where the answer is. But no, we created that in the first place so we can use it as a tool, but not rely on it. And um, so that's my spiel. But Andrew, uh, uh, you know, I, I know you're also interested in farming and I would just finish by saying this, if anybody really wants to learn true alchemy, you become a farmer. And, uh, you know, right now <laughs> we're in the midst of planting season and, and I'm looking outside and, you know, I was outside all, all day yesterday, just planting new herbs and preparing new, uh, you know, growing grounds. And we're seeing things that from last year are flourishing even better this year. And, you know, when you just on a day-to-day -day basis are surrounded in nature and watching things grow and working with the plants, you have a palpable interaction between yourself and, and, and those life forms. And you really get to experience firsthand with no doubt left in your mind that there is a, a real communication there that exists between all of life. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, even been even been shown uh, with with conventional scientific study. And, uh, you know, I am familiar with uh, Eileen Mikusik's work, who uh, she calls it biofield tuning, but she's also working with, uh, you know, sound emanations from our body. And she uses tuning forks to uh, find where there's a, a disturbance in the resonance. And, um, you know, it also reminded me of the experiment, and this is very accessible for people. You can find a YouTube video of this where you have... Um, a group of uh, pendulums on a table, right? And you start them all off and you could do this, you know, 20 or 25 pendulums. And uh, you start them off uh, swinging back and forth at different uh, intervals and watch them over time. And you'll see that they all synchronize. 
right? And because these uh, pressure waves somehow uh, get in phase with each other and affect the motion of the pendulum. And it's really incredible to watch uh, because it's not something, you know, it appears to be like magic, right? Uh, because we don't, you don't fully understand the mechanism. And it's <clears throat> quite likely that our, our bodies can work in this way as well. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at at a simplistic level. And the technology can be a double-edged sword. It, it can be used for sinister purposes. And I'll give you the example of television. Uh, obviously, we know there's a lot of negative things about television. But if you look at the original patents, you'll see that uh, they specify a specific uh, refresh rate of the images, right, which is essentially a vibration. And that vibratory frequency tends to influence our own brain waves vibrational frequency and puts us into uh, what in an EEG terminology like electroencephalography would be alpha waves. And we know that when the brain is in an alpha wave state, we're much more suggestible and open to new information. So the television essentially uses the same kind of technology to put us in that brain state where then whatever information that they're putting out in the, in the television content we will take in and accept uh, much more, we'll be much more likely to accept than if we're in a, a different uh, brain state. Um, so it's very fascinating stuff. But that's, uh, uh, that's why we call uh, Alpha Vedic. That's why we came up with that because we're suggesting new ways of, of medicine and into your brain. So that was uh, part of the uh, stimulus behind our name, actually. Um, but yeah, we talked about that TV programming is called programming for a reason, huh? Yeah, absolutely. You know, language is a very important thing to, uh, to pay special attention to. I mean, even the word germ, for example, right, which most people think of as a dangerous microorganism, the word originally means a new growth or budding, right? Like a germ oh, cell or this drove germ. Bishop, this drove Bishop crazy because he was like, why are they calling it? He, I, I'm in the Ethel de Hume book, they, she talks about it, how it just drove him crazy that uh, he's like, they're so bad, they name, even named their thing the wrong way because it just, it, it's a budding or growth, as you're going to say. It's already interrupt, but that, uh, that's just so funny. It's just such an inversion. Yeah, well, so many words are like that. Um, you know, really, really they are. I mean, the, the same thing could be thought of as virus and exosome if they are, in fact, the same thing. Uh, you know, virus means poison and it, it may actually be something that uh, helps us uh, be saved from a poison. <laughs> Isn't that uh, crazy? Uh, well, one thing you uh, we talked about before the uh, show started, and I know this is something that Bear, uh, it fits into this, is uh, Andrew, you've been very, um, you know, one of your goals right now, one of the things you're working on is helping kids and stuff that have been vaccine damaged. And uh, I argue oftentimes that um, most of our ills from the last 100 years in terms of all these new quote unquote diseases are, are literally coming from the vaccines and from man's messing with our nature by injecting stuff into us. Um, it's kind of this Frankenstein science, but um, obviously we're seeing uh, effects everywhere and um, trying to mitigate those effects is a, a very uh, admirable um, job to do. And I know, you know, Dr. Lando bears had a lot of experience with that. And we, you know, bear, maybe you want to go a little bit into what you've done in the past. And then, uh, Andrew would love to hear what you're kind of working on. Yeah, please. 
Sure. The, unfortunately, there's not a recipe in terrain medicine. The first thing you learn is everybody is unique and has different needs. So you have to weigh to assess on the ground, uh, not only what those needs are, but you have to be able to prioritize them and you have to do things in proper sequence. Just like if you're out on a construction site, if you don't things, do things <clears throat> in proper order, you know, it's just not going to come out that good. So, uh, you know, there are certain things that I know in naturopathic circles, people use like Thuya, you know, it's different spagyric or, or homeopathic rep preparations of it that are known to be effective in leaching out some of the um, remnants of, uh, you know, the toxic elements within vaccines. But there's so many different things in vaccines right now and always have been actually that it requires a lot of measures on different levels. So uh, in the past, I did see quite a few people uh, with kids that were vaccine damaged. So the first thing we do is put them on a biotrain program and that would require us to do labs, hands-on assessment and um, you know, uh, uh, measures with clinical kinesiology and, and a number of other things we employ. Uh, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, just discerning, you know, the state of their body through their pulses and, and all that manner of things. And based on that, we would be able to find out exactly what we needed to do in that body. And first off, you'd have to find, you know, where in their body they might be challenged as far as their amongtry or, or uh, drainage channels being compromised with some people, you might have to, you know, work on liver channels or kidney channels, uh, you know, respiratory, so that they could be more efficient in eliminating these things. And then depending on, uh, you know, what organ system you're working on, then there's a myriad of ways that you can interact just on that one organism or organ system that's different from individual to individual. So you really have to have a way to be able to assess these things and do them properly. And then we'd also back it up with a lot of hands-on um, techniques that would, uh, you know, uh, allow like a retraining of the nervous system. Because what you've really done is you've interrupted the communication channels within the neurology itself. So a lot of times that would have to be retrained and, and sometimes just with simple uh, repetitive movements to reinstate the normal patterns uh, you know, the way the, the nervous system normally works. For instance, when you walk, you have kind of a cross-crawl pattern. And that's why when we're infants, you know, we crawl before we can walk because we're in training all these patterns. So it's uh, very necessary most of the time, especially with kids, to take them back to ground zero and retrain them just like they're infants. And we have a lot of techniques physically to help do that while we're, uh, you know, uh, working on their terrain and, and, and chelating different uh, heavy metals out. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of ways, depending on the, the metals involved, and there's a lot of heavy metals, in, uh, you know, that are contained in those vaccines. Um, and, and then also using homeopathics and spagyrics to put in new informational fields that will repattern them on different levels uh, you know, back to the original primal uh, uh, patterns before they had other things interjected in there that are, you know, taking over the machinery. Um, so any thoughts so far? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm curious because I think the, uh, the predominant metal that's uh, pervasive in vaccines is aluminum, and it's in the form of a sort of nanoparticulate aluminum hydroxide powder. 
So well, what, uh, what specific like spagyrics or chelators uh, do you think would uh, work best in that situation? Well, the first thing is to pay attention, as I already mentioned, to the normal drainage channels because the body is typically capable of getting rid of anything on its own. Now, if it's really compromised, uh, you know, after still and needs extra help, after those channels are open and if the testing reveals you need to take extra measures, then you might do certain chelation uh, procedures. Uh, certain metals like aluminum, you might use uh, you know, EDTA and things. In the old days, we used to rely more on IV drips and uh, of chelation therapies. Uh, over the years, I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion that's a little more invasive and a little bit harsh. Uh, and you know, I don't, didn't do as much in later years because with more sophisticated terrain measures, coupled with just using um, uh, real intense concentrates from uh, green foods like algaes, and uh, you know chlorella and cilantro, and you know we we get very strong hundred to one concentrates, for instance, that are really good at binding up with uh, particular metals and getting those things out. And you might do a hair analysis that shows that okay, there's a preponderance of aluminum, but then when you do your um, bioterrain protocols, you might find. Well, in actuality, there's another metal that you have to pay attention to, get it out with a different measure than maybe you'd use for aluminum. And then that is, uh, you know, the sequential key in order for the body to get rid of the aluminum in the first place. And it might just be able to get rid of the rest of it on its own. So it's, again, it goes back to really being able to treat an individual, you know, as an individual. Interesting. Um, what are the, what do you think are the different, uh, like would someone who has more of a nervous system problem versus, uh, someone who maybe has an intestinal problem or a joint problem, would that uh, give you information about the specific, uh, nature of the underlying condition? Yeah, it, it would absolutely do that. But also you and I, for instance, can be subjected to the same toxin, and depending on our idiosyncrasies and our vulnerabilities that are unique to us, you might develop a digestive problem and I might develop a neurological degenerative issue. So the same thing can create different things in different people. It's all about how we react to things. For instance, uh, another type of testing we do is uh, metabolic typing. And what we understand is that based on if a person is a slow oxidizer, fast oxidizer, if their uh, parasympathetic is dominant over the sympathetic or you know, any number of imbalances that could happen, uh, we're going to react much differently to the same substance or even food. You know, you can take food, for instance, and people say, oh, you need to eat alkaline foods. And, there, you know, there's uh, some wisdom to that. On the other hand, I could eat a, an, a particular alkaline food, and it might actually make me acidic, depending on my unique chemistry and uh, my reaction to it to, compared to, you know, you, it might shift you in an alkaline position and, and Mike. Uh, you know, it just might be neutral. So one of the main labs we do in, uh, you know, with everybody, including vaccine damaged people is ionization analysis, where we understand it's not so much the chemistry, it's the electrical properties of the body that have to be managed. And uh, just like in waveform physics, when I use a dual impedance antenna to discern from the, uh, you know, 
primal waveforms where their polarities are asymmetrical, whether it's a, a horizontal east-west or a, a north-south polarity. And, and then we can then uh, understand based on where the distortions are, what you're talking about is a vector of electricity that's distorting you know, the waveform. And, and all our body is is a composite of a myriad of waveforms. And then you can uh, you know, measure the whole composite. So with that technology, you can discern where the distortions are, where your therapies need to lie in order to bring the electrical vectors back into symmetry. So with the ionization analysis, which is a lab assay of certain uh, biochemical elements, then we put that in a mathematical um, equation and we can uh, see the proportions of uh, these elements one to another and know how they're being managed in the body. So that tells you, you know, what different organ systems are doing. But more importantly, it tells you exactly where the vectors of electrical forces are distorted, just like, uh, you know, the dual impedance uh, analysis. And then through that, we use chemistry in order to change the electricity. So instead of looking at alkalinity or acidity, you know, we're looking at more of a cationic, anionic level as uh, far as resistance and the speed of electricity, its velocity. We're looking at the other elements that play into it, uh, you know, because they will create the conductivity that will, you know, create the magnitude that's going to amplify uh, problems. And so, you're, you know, you, you keep going back to this is an electrical problem. So going back to helping the body uh, chelate uh, something out or to bring it back into balance in some other way, uh, you know, the, you're going to cut a lot of corners by going to that primal electrical system, managing the distortions at that level. And what's nice about it is you get the solution from step one because you're just looking where everything emanates from in the first place. And then all your modalities that you, you know, use that you secondarily test to see what brings the symmetries back, then that tells you all the things that we as doctors are trained to, you know, be more obsessive about. And that is, okay, what organ systems are compromised and, you know, what things on the ground are we, you know, needing to manage, but you're not reverse engineering from those external after effects. You're in turn going from the top down with the solution first and knowing exactly what you need to use in order to create the changes you want. And at the same time, understanding how those effects, uh, you know, from the top have created what you're seeing in the body. So I, that probably doesn't really answer your, you know, question really concisely, but that's the methodology. And it's a whole different inversion of what all of us are taught in conventional medicine, naturopathy. It doesn't matter. We're all in the same box trying to reverse engineer from after effects that the alchemists of old would have said, what, what the heck are you doing? You're, you're caught in the Maya and you're not even understanding where things come from in the first place. Now we have ways to do that. Wow, that's really fascinating approach and uh, seems very elegant uh, in terms of a method. Um, you know, I think uh, conventional medicine almost completely ignores the electromagnetic aspects of our body. And, uh, you know, they certainly do talk about it like we have, you know, EKGs and EEGs and uh, EMGs, right, which are just for diagnostic purposes. And then they certainly teach us about things like action potentials and nerve cells and, uh, you know, surface uh, membrane potential uh, for all different cells. But they never really develop that into 
a physiological explanation and they never talk about any therapeutic ways to use electromagnetism uh, to help with any underlying condition. It's almost like they, they just focus on the chemistry only and as if it's just like there's a correlate, uh, you know, that's, oh yeah, there's electrical properties, but they don't really mean anything. Uh, you know, kind of that result just from ions flowing and things like that. But, uh, but there's, there's a whole other world uh, to this, and, and it's something that I really need to learn a lot more about. And it's, it's really exciting, all the possibilities that are presented, uh, you know, from this kind of approach. Yeah, Michael. Well, we're looking. Go ahead, Bear. Well, I was just going to say real quick, you know, we're trained as doctors to look at all the fractured parts on the ground. And so our, our mindset and our whole, uh, you know, perspective is, is fractured. It's just going off in all different directions. And you, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in psychiatry, they have a diagnostic label for that. Uh, they, they have one for virtually everything. <laughs> and yeah. uh, well, when, when you're, when you're fragmented off in different personalities, I think they call it schizophrenia. Uh, well, uh, schizophrenia does literally mean split personality, but that's not what they use uh, to describe that condition. I think you're talking about dissociative identity disorder, uh, which is okay. um, like multiple personality disorder used to be uh, mm -hmm. the name for it. But yeah, it is a, a fracturing of the uh, pers personality, so to speak. Um, but you know, you know how they come up with the psychiatric diagnoses that are in the manuals is they basically just make them up out of thin air. Like they, they have some, some doctors get together and they say, have you seen any patients with this, you know, constellation of, of issues? And they say, yeah, I've seen that. And then they say, well, what are the issues? Uh, a, B, C, and D and E, F, and G. And then they say, all right, let's create a new uh, label for this and a new disorder. And uh, each version of the DSM is the book where they list all these. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, there's no statistics in it, by the way. Um, and uh, each version that comes out, there's like an exponential expansion of the number of diagnoses. So you could virtually label anyone uh, with something from there, uh, probably multiple different things. Yeah, so uh, germ theory denier will be in there soon, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a delusional disorder, probably. <laughs> or they could, they could definitely have, you know, because delusional disorder uh, has these uh, subtypes of specific uh, type of delusions, and a, a delusion is defined as a fixed false belief. So, uh, you know, most commonly you might uh, hear about people who, you know, have a delusion that... Uh, you know, everyone is uh, spies working for the Russian government and, um, you know, that we have to take them out uh, or else we're going to be in grave danger or things like that. So they have these different categories, like there's like the jealous type, you know, so people who uh, always feel that um, their partner is always cheating on them, even if there's no evidence to back it up. Uh, there's a somatic type where people might... Um, believe that they're pregnant, for example. I had a patient like this who was uh, in her 60s and had believed she was pregnant for 20 years. And uh, it was really fascinating because I said, well, how come you, you, know, you haven't delivered the baby yet? And uh, she said, well, I saw this advertisement for the blood pressure medicine that I was taking and it said it could result in prolonged labor. So that's why I haven't <laughs> delivered yet and it's been prolonged for 20 years. 
So, uh, you know, so people with these kind of fixed beliefs are very, very rigid. And so they could have a category of, uh, you know, conspiracy type delusions. Um, I, I, I could see them putting that in there. Yeah. And we could relate this back to the out of body stuff. And this can go back to more spiritual <laughs> stuff, but how we have potentially past lives and all these other uh, ramifications for these delusions. Right. And I mean, it's just, there's so much that you know, mainstream doesn't get into in terms of the, uh, the electrical, but also in, in terms of consciousness. And, you know, one, one thing that I'm seeing um, is there seems to be a certain type of individual that can, that sees through the veil and can see what's going on in terms of the control matrix and how the tricks that are being played to control society. And then there's the other flip side of people that are very much, uh, react in a way where they look to those people who see in that way as crazy or cons- quote unquote conspiracy theorists, et cetera. And my new theory is that, cause I've, I've always seen it since I was a little kid and I know bears probably been the same way. And it sounds like you too, Andrew, very much easily see through the veil. And I think this could relate to beyond an epigenetic concept, but to literally that, like the bloodline that you're from or that your, your past lives that, we come, you know, you come from a specific bloodline that has a specific genetic strain or whatever we want to call it that harks back to Atlantis or whatever, and that we have this distant memory of knowledge and where there's other bloodlines that people come in that maybe don't have that heritage of understanding. And so it's harder for them to see through the veil and they're ap- you know, a little bit easier controlled in that sense. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research into these bloodlines and stuff. And it's, you know, it is really some fascinating rabbit holes uh, that you can go down. But um, that's a theory that i am kind of been working on in terms of, you know, how there seems to be some individuals that can very easily not get caught up in the matrix while others seem to be very much caught up in it. I don't know. Just throwing yeah, that well, no, no, it's really good because I've definitely put a lot of thought into this because, you know, I mean, we've all had the experience, right, that once we uh, see through the veil and start looking at the, the true nature of what's going on in our world, you know, from a, a metaphysical, a spiritual level and also from a historical and uh, current events political level, um, it's, it's very difficult to then have relationships with people who are still stuck in the matrix paradigm. And, uh, you know, and, and then once you see the truth and you realize that um, uh, the people that you thought may be your benefactor are actually, uh, you know, manipulating you or doing harm to you, then you want everyone else to be able to see that too, you know, not just for the selfish reason of uh, that you want to be able to still talk to your friends or family, but also because, you know, you want to save uh, us from the plight of, uh, you know, being fully controlled, which is uh, clearly where things are heading at the moment. And so, you know, a lot of, I think you start off thinking, well, if I use the right, the right language, the right approach, the right technique, um, you know, maybe I could uh, open up someone uh, to this material. But the more I have, you know, personal experience and also talk to other people about their uh, attempts at doing this, uh, what I find is that some people are just uh, completely closed off to this for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's through a bloodline, but I, certainly if, if I am part of this bloodline, it, it has not been expressed in uh, the other members of my family in this bloodline. But, uh, but nevertheless, it's, uh, you know, so my, my friend James True talks about this in terms of an aperture and that basically the aperture has to be open uh, beyond a threshold 
in order for someone to be receptive to information that contradicts the you know mainstream ideas and and uh, culture and so when i've been speaking out publicly lately i've been taking this into account and i don't i don't expect that anyone who's totally closed off is really going to uh, listen to what I say, they'll probably just turn it off if they come across it. But there are those people who their apertures open just a little bit, just enough. And what's going on now, some of the policies are just so blatantly obvious against the mainstream narrative, like, you know, about healthcare workers being laid off and hospitals being empty, right? How can you uh, take that knowledge in and not realize that it's the opposite the exact opposite of what you'd expect if there was the most you know serious pandemic in a hundred years, and so if you if you don't realize from from that observation that something is fishy, then you're not going to realize it. Uh, even if the government made an announcement that said, "Yes, we tricked you," <laughs> you know, you're going to say, "Oh, that's just a practical joke." Exactly. Uh, but those people whose apertures open just enough to see these uh, obvious contradictions and say, you know, something is fishy here. You know, that's the person that, uh, that I want to be able to reach because they could take the, that's fishy to understanding the whole ball of wax. And then, then they would be able to make decisions to, you know, not follow the mandates and, um, because uh, there's no need to. And uh, actually, they're all technically voluntary anyway. Um, even, even Governor Cuomo publicly stated that. Um, uh, you know, and it's on YouTube. So, uh, you know, if you're open to seeing that, uh, you know, then you can make much better decisions. And so that's, uh, you know, I hope that more and more people are like that, but I don't know what it takes to go from the closed aperture to one that's open just enough. I think there's, uh, you know, something there that maybe somebody can influence that, but I haven't uh, figured it out at all. Well, yeah. recognizing the truth on any level requires a lot of self-responsibility. Um, you know, if you think about a lot of the things that we entertain in natural medicine or just self-sufficient living, it would uh, require people make a lot of changes in their own life. They might have to change jobs. They might have to change relationships. They might have to take uh, risk that they aren't ready to take. Uh, they might suffer ridicule from their peers. They might get uh, let go from their jobs. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of fear there. And I think that's what, uh, you know, is used against us. We're so entrained to, you know, uh, you know, be inclined to go for safety and security rather than looking at this as an adventure and defaulting back to the, you know, more the mechanics of it on, on that electrical side of things. You know, we all put things in place that uh, supersede the natural symmetrical patterns of nature. And that's what creates all of our problems in our finances, our health, our relationships. And that is, in fact, what I believe gets carried over from lifetime to lifetime. And those forces would be easy to change, but they have the emotional content associated with them that maintain the, the intensity and the velocity to keep them you know, outpicturing in our, in our affairs. And so it, I think it really just gets down to that simple level as, you know, is a person really ready to just let everything go and, and take great risk? And of course, those of us that have taken little baby steps for a long time, you know, by the time you get around to making a change, you 
take a big, deep sigh of relief and you say, God, what took me so long? This is great. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, you might describe that as cognitive dissonance, right? Where you have uh, two opposing ideas and uh, one would make you change your entire life around and the other one would keep things status quo. So you stick with that. And uh, it does, you know, take quite a bit of responsibility. And, um, you know, Neil Kramer, who's uh, someone I've worked with uh, in my spiritual development, has a maxim that says, truthful living disturbs untruthful living. And, um, you know, I've experienced this in my life, and it has definitely uh, damaged and uh, totally transformed relationships with people. Uh, it's also allowed me the opportunity to create new relationships uh, with other people who are more open to, uh, you know, seeing the truth uh, when it's, it's there. And, and so sometimes, like, what happens is someone has a glimpse uh, outside the matrix and, uh, you know, their apertures just open a little and they may say something's fishy about this or that. And then they realize the consequences. Suddenly they're like, oh, crap, if I go that route, you know, my life is going to be totally turned upside down. So let me just go back into the Matrix. Right. And even in the movie, The Matrix. Right. We saw that one of the characters um, after was uh, woken up to the truth and was fighting uh, with the rebels. Right. Made a deal to go back to sleep. Right. Because it was just easier, um, even though, you know, really what he was volunteering was to be a complete slave. He wanted that steak. Yes, <laughs> the steak, the steak. Yeah, um, you hit a, you hit on a great point there, mm -hmm. which is the idea of spirit and spiritualism. And of course, it seems like the trend right now is just to disconnect us from spirit. And that's what vaccines do and the digital and everything is disconnecting us from our primal spirit, because that's really what gives us the connection to do the things that really bring us happiness in the end. You know, it's like, you know, you get, you got to do is put some work in to have that experience. I mean, like for me, some of the greatest emotional highs I get is when I really get a crazy workout in and do a crazy 10 mile run, you know, and it's like, sometimes I'm dreading it, but once you do it, you're just like on this natural high in the top of the mountain here that I, you know, I do these trail runs and you're like, God, I'm glad I did that today. You know, it sucked at the beginning and it, and during this, some parts of it, it was terrible, but in the end, I feel amazing and I'm healthier for it. And it's, I feel like our society has just really gone in the route where it's all about immediate, see, getting, you know, immediate um, satisfaction from things and uh, everything's just so in this nanny state where everything's just given to us. And that's, that's all, you know, specifically done for a reason. And, um, yeah, getting back to spirit and the spiritual side of things is so important. And that's what really Alpha Vedic, why we're building this community out is so that people can have a place where we can share these ideas without any judgment and can explore these concepts and come together in this kind of, uh, you know, digital virtual community, if you will, but also in a way where we can, we can have these discussions and talk on a more kind of real humanistic level so that people can kind of get out of the fear matrix and have a support system. Cause I feel like that's so important. As you said earlier, we are a communal species. We're a tribal species. We need the support from each other so that we can, uh, you know, bridge out from these, uh, from this conditioning we've had our whole life 
And so I think it's important that with what you're doing, Andrew, and going on all these shows and, 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 and really educating folks about stuff with their microbiology and, and much more beyond that and what we're trying to do. And there's, I will say I'm an, I'm a, inherent positivist, if you will. I'm, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always trying to push the positive side of things because as you said in the hermetic laws, there's the, um, you know, one side here, one side here. There's always a balancing, right? I forgot what law that is. Yeah, um, pol- polarity. Polarity, thank you. And so while we're seeing this extreme kind of negative side with the forced vaccinations, you know, that they're pushing these agendas for tracking everyone or just I was just watching this video of, uh, of Clinton, Bill Clinton talking with Gruesome Newsome from our state where they're talking about how they can't wait to get the tracking app out, you know, and as you said, it is voluntary, but their people need it for their own health and safety. And Bill Clinton's sitting there going, ah, oh, you're doing such a great job and going to get this app out and we're going to finally track everybody. I mean, they're out in the open about it. Because the polarity is there, like that polarity is there. But on the flip side, we're talking right now and we've got people on DLive right now who are chatting and, and are having a blast. And we've got shows like Crow 777 and uh, guys out there that are just bringing out this information that um, is getting massive. And while we have the censorship, we've got stuff like blockchain and decentralization that's coming out that will allow for this to get out. So there's always a balancing and there's always uh, the flip side. And so my point is here is like, it's really easy to get down and out with this stuff. But when you understand these basic laws and these basic principles, um, there's so much amazing stuff happening right now. And I think this is the most exciting time to be alive ever. And I personally believe we all chose to be here at this time to go through this and um, grab, grab life by the balls. It's an adventure. Go out and make the change you want to see and life will reward you in spades beyond measure, as I'm sure you're starting to experience right now, Andrew, with what everything you've been doing. Well, you know, I'm very fortunate because when I started uh, opening myself up to really seeing the full nature of the truth about many of these issues, I, I had a friend who he, he was encouraging me. I think he saw that I was open to it and he knew that I would be ready and he kind of kept giving me uh, a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, you know breadcrumbs here and there, and finally I took the bait. And then he he was ready to come in and tell me, you know, Andy, listen, you've got to you've got to open yourself up to some spiritual inner work uh, to balance this out. Otherwise, you're gonna you know go into this sort of uh, catastrophic uh, fear state, right? Because you realize that uh, so many things are just so fucked up. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, that you can panic. And in fact, I'm working with someone right now who's going through this process and uh, we have a call after, after this and I'm going to help uh, just ground her a little bit and, uh, you know, try to push her in the right direction. And so that, that's how I came upon uh, Neil Kramer and um, what is really, I mean, he definitely has a lot of good things to say and I learned a lot and I learned what to you know, where I can explore things. And I learned that it's a very individual work and that you have to figure out your own path. It's not a formulaic uh, recipe. But one of the things that came out of that is that uh, a group of fellowship uh, amongst people all going through that, all at varying stages of trying to do this kind of inner work. And uh, we support each other through that. And it's been just a, a great way to balance out um, you know, the, the stuff that's really uh, disturbing to learn about. And so when I started realizing, which was, you know, pretty early on, 
that this uh, you know COVID pandemic was not what it uh, what it appeared to be. Um, in addition to you know doing research and looking at material, I was also focusing on uh, the inner side, like uh, you know how can I come to the truth about this? How can I um, you know take care of myself? What do the people need on a spiritual level? Um, you know, in order to deal with the situation and figure it out. And I had this, uh, you know, moment when, because after having all the intention about trying to get to the bottom of it, and that it was really important, uh, you know, for humanity overall, that on a Saturday evening, um, it just came to me, this whole idea about the exosomes. And I, before I did any research on it, um, I heard somebody mention it, it, that was Tom Cowan. And then it was like all the whole theory just came into my awareness. And I've never really experienced that before. Like I've had those aha moments, but only after I immerse myself in research. And in this case, I had the aha moment before I did the research. And, and then I, I went about doing the research and I, I did it at a quite intense uh, pace. I think, you know, for about 36 to 48 hours, I only slept a few hours. I, I ate maybe one meal. And uh, I was just consuming all this research to figure it out. And everything I was finding just confirmed this information that came to me almost uh, magically, right? And so somehow, you know, because of maybe the universe uh, made it happen, maybe there was something about me that made me a receptacle, but this, this information just came into my awareness, and it turned out to be really, really accurate. And I don't, if I didn't spend the time and effort the last several years to try and do this spiritual work and develop myself into a more mature, uh, more moral, uh, better person, I don't think I would have been capable of that experience. Walter Russell at one time was asked by an individual how he possibly created all he did in his life because he had actually a greater body of work uh, that he left behind than Leonardo da Vinci. It's something that most people don't realize. And Walter just simply said, well, it's easy. I don't do anything out here. He simply completed the picture in his mind. And then when he did a sculptor or created a free energy device or, or uh, understood uh, what the transuranium elements that people were searching for and knew exactly where to find them. And then, you know, went ahead and shared that with the scientific community at the time. He just had the answers automatically. He said, you never waste your time tinkering on the outside or looking at anything out there. And that is the classic definition of old world alchemy as well. Wow. That's, wow. that's really fascinating. That, that goes too with the whole, like I just did a 48 hour screen uh, detox and I think it's important to do that. Crow for Crow 777 talks about this a lot too, is, is stepping away from all that and just being by yourself. We've, we've really lost that concept, huh? You know, because we're so connected and we're so tapped in and the idea is we can get information like that. But that's all external and going back to the internalization and, uh, you know, on the positive, I am seeing a big resurgence in meditation and, and a, a lot of these internal practices, uh, Qigong and, and stuff like that. And I mean, that's what the great masters always did is they went internal. And that's an, an amazing point there, Bear. Uh, and I know Walter Russell, even didn't he like go out? Didn't he like go into a coma or something for a while and then came back out and then all these charts he started drawing? I mean, yeah. 
pretty fascinating. The, stuff. the largest, the you know, longest one was 49 days. Well, there's a reason why this country was created as a constitutional republic, and that is that every individual is a sovereign of their own world. You know, sure, we have a government that works on our behalf to just keep certain infrastructures going, but they take orders from us, but nobody can tell us what to do. And things work very well for a long time, which is how this country rose to prominence. Yeah, we sure had our problems, but, you know, it was a great experience. And now we're... Um, now we're subjected to a lot of these things that are inverting that as, as they've done with all things. And of course, a lot of us are concerned that we're losing our freedoms, but we, there's no way you can lose a freedom unless you give it away or grant authority to somebody else. So that's the, the biggest deception. And that's why, uh, you know, returning to the land, just if you live in a city, grow your own garden, uh, just those small little steps in self-sufficiency, growing your own food, taking care of your own body, uh, taking care of your own issues, creating a business rather than working for the IRS or something. You know, it's very empowering. And then that really builds on, you know, what we think of as a spiritual level, but it's really not spiritual. There's no separation between the parts. It's just who we are. We are a pure consciousness that are putting you know, that prana or that universal canvas in motion by what we think, believe, and feel. And I, you know, I share Mike's optimism because, you know, everything is in full, full view right now. What we're actually seeing is the Klingon spaceship completely uncloaked. And we had to get to this point, you know, before they could make their final move, they had to show themselves. So more and more people are saying, wow, has that been there the whole time? And, um, you know, so more people are waking up. We had to get to this point, just like in a sick body. Sometimes when you treat it with bioterrain medicine, it seems like it's getting worse before it gets better because you're getting everything to the surface and out in the open. And that's where we are as a society right now. And it's, it's real tempting to get seduced and to think that everything's going to hell in a handbag and in a, in a handbag, but it's actually the opposite. These are the best of times. And, and then, of course, understanding that we are the creative force in the universe, the more of us that come to that realization rather than getting down in the dumps and just saying, you know, the person you're talking about that works with you, Andrew, very wise words to say, yeah, if you're not balanced out, then it's very easy to get morose with your tail between your legs because it, it sure looks bad out there right now. But, but no, this is, these are the times that we've been waiting for. It's a, it, it's such a, um, you know, an apparent uh, irony that it is the time we've been waiting for, right? And I, I, I agree with you guys. I'm looking very optimistically toward the future because I think this, uh, I see myself, you know, living in the future completely free of uh, all of this uh, centralized authority kind of uh, society that we've been in, right, where everything's about control. But um in order to get there, right, we have to sort of face this big challenge. And if you you can easily, you know, go into a different kind of outlook, right, where you, uh, and, you know, I think my initial reaction was uh, along these lines, you know, that, all right, we have to arm ourselves and be ready for a revolution and, you know, uh, and and fight for our rights and it's going to be bloody and nasty and everything like that, right? And and um, I think that that's a that's kind of a trap because that's really doing the same kind of thing that they're doing to us. 
And, uh, you know, the, the higher ground is to step outside of that uh, adversarial combat warfare uh, relationship and realize that, you know, we are higher beings and we don't have to go to that level. We don't have to cooperate, right? Because it is, it is our choice. And maybe we inadvertently gave consent to participate in these systems, you know, throughout most of our life, but we can change that. Now, you know, we can decide to that we are no longer giving our consent and that we're going to follow our, you know, God-given inalienable rights uh, in how we behave. And we're going to demonstrate that we follow the higher moral principles, that we obey natural law, that we're not out there to do harm to people. We're out there to cooperate with people. And I think that's really our true nature. And we've been so uh, fooled into thinking that it's not our true nature, that our true nature is savages, that we would, you know, gladly uh, kill each other and steal our resources to enrich ourselves, right? And uh, if you look at um, movies and TV and pop culture and uh, even pop music, right, you see that theme played out over and over and over again. And to the point that we start to believe that, oh, that's this is what people are like. They're inherently dangerous. And the current policies... Uh, definitely amplify that, right? Because we see people with masks and, you know, who wears masks outside of a costume party? It's people trying to hide their identity, like bank robbers and bandits, Antifa. right? So we need, yeah, Antifa, exactly. People who are terrorists, right? That we need to be afraid of. So, um, you know, it's really important to be able to acknowledge this and step outside. And and I know that, you know, there's lots of evidence uh, that, that our true nature is uh, cooperative and supportive. Um, because look what happens when, you know, someone that you know uh, identifies as in need of help, everybody rushes to their assistance. And that's just a natural way that we are. And, and we can get back to that. And our relationship to nature and the land is a key aspect to realize uh, our true nature. Well said. I think, um, you know, it's probably time where we start winding things down a little bit. Mike, you tell me how we're doing. Yeah. But um, I just want to make a quick comment before you have any final comments, Andrew, about people that are wearing masks. Uh, you know, one thing that we don't consider is that the lungs uh, discharge more toxins from our body with every exhale than any other elimination organ in our body. So it may not be a good idea walking around breathing your own exhaust all day long. <laughs> there are so many negative uh, things about the masks. I mean, it just, you can't get enough airflow through it. Uh, your point is an excellent one. And then also, depending on what the mask is made of, you're inhaling uh, particulates or, or uh, vaporized uh, volatile uh, chemicals from the mask itself, which are no doubt toxic. Yeah. Uh, real quick, back to your point, Andrew, on uh, the, the nature of humans and, uh, you know, that we're constantly push this idea that we're all savages and we're going to steal from each other if things get tough. Well, Vice did a really, not that I'm a big fan of Vice, because I feel like they're a propaganda arm probably run by the CIA now, but um, Vice News did a really interesting piece on the last music festival in the world. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, um, but it's, uh, these, these folks went down to this, uh, and as a DJ and stuff who's thrown festivals, I, I love this culture, and I think it's really cool, actually. But there was this remote festival down in Panama, and they all went down there in March and got stuck down there. And... Um, they were forced to shut down and um, long story short, they're still there 
and they're thriving and they're living <laughs> off the land and they're happy and they don't want to leave. And um, it's become like kind of a great experiment of, of people that have from all walks of life, different parts of the world are now forced to live off the land in this paradise, really. And uh, it ended up being like a really, even though Vice had all these like, you know, typical little injections of fear and the virus and humanity, you know, fighting each other. In the end, they had to admit, well, you know, these people seem pretty darn happy. <laughs> so it was pretty great. I recommend watching it. Yeah, I'd love to check that out. That sounds amazing. And Panama is, has uh, even much stricter uh, regulations than we do here. They, they only allow you uh, to leave your home, like to go food shopping uh, uh, one or two days a week yep. for, for a short window of time like China. Shout out to Robert and her telegram. He's uh, an expat that lives there. It's giving us from the ground a really amazing commentary about it all. In fact, our family was supposed to go to Panama uh, for spring break. And he was, uh, he had sent me a ton of info on it. And we were really looking forward to Boca and all these places. And of course, in March, early March, I was saying, no way in hell we're going to Panama now. And that these festival goers somehow thought they could still go mid-March. And they were kind of shows that they weren't really tapped in. But, hey, they're pretty stoked because they're living in paradise now, fishing, eating crab, and, you know, picking coconuts. So uh, good for them. Uh, we can wrap it up now. Uh, any parting words for our community, Andrew? It's has been a great talk. We really appreciate the time um, you put forth today to be with us. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, I think I've said a number of things and uh, I think, you know, this is a really nice community and uh, of uh, free thinkers and, uh, you know, focused on health related issues. And so I'm just uh, privileged to, you know, be invited here and, and uh, have a forum to uh, to talk with you guys. Um, you guys, uh, I wish we could have more ongoing discussions because I feel like there's a, a lot I can learn from you. Beautiful, beautiful. And Bear, um, well, and just to say that too, I know you're in our Telegram group and anybody who wants to continue this conversation with our community, we are very active. I, I took two days off and I came back to like 900 missed messages. Uh, so it's a little overwhelming in some respects. I love you guys though, and I, I appreciate you so much. And I uh, I'm so happy to see our, our Telegram community just exploding and there's just amazing um, thinkers in there and really keeping me on my toes. So I appreciate you guys and Bear's in there too. And we've got a, a, a number of amazing um, uh, you know, influencers and professionals, practitioners. And really what we're trying to do is create that new community, that, uh, that groups of communities and tribes of people that uh, can come together and create the new reality that we all want to see happen. So, uh, you know, being proactive and, and doing it in your own life is important. So uh, if you guys want to join us on Telegram, it's t.me forward slash Alpha Vedic. And then, of course, you can uh, find all of our information on our website, alphavedic.com, which we're very excited about our new website launch, which we've been working on forever. But it's about to launch and it will be much more focused on our farm and our new, our new products uh, that we're releasing. We've got a new Carbon 60 lineup that's coming out with one with a, a C60 Citrus uh, CBD product that's really exciting. Um, we've got uh, a whole new Illumin line coming out uh, that I'm really excited about. Uh, and of course, our new uh, Life Force protein line and the Spagyrics that Bear is uh, working on, which will be out uh, early fall, it's looking like probably. 
which will be our Jalgulan spagyric, and which is our main um, uh, herb that we are focusing on, along with a number of others. So uh, check us out on alphavedic.com. And of course, if you're listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube, please subscribe, hit the like button. Uh, you can join us uh, live every Thursday at 10 a.m. on DLive, dlive.tv forward slash alphavedic. We're really trying to grow on this platform. We're trying to be less and less on the YouTubes and Facebooks of the world. I personally would would love it if I never had to go on those platforms again. But unfortunately, due to the nature of where everything is right now, that's where most people are. So you can find us there. Uh, however, we are working with um, a project uh, called Cordal to initiate a new decentralized internet. I'm working on a project called ManifestX to initiate a new type of uh, monetary system. So we're always working on things. And uh, I think, Bear, we're going to plan on doing a crypto for dummy show next month hopefully with jason from cordal so that'll be fun uh, we've got justin franson on next week to talk about 5g from emf rocks and we'll just continue these conversations and um we appreciate you guys thanks for joining us today and uh bear any parting words for our community uh just thanks everybody for being out there and again thank you andrew you're phenomenal just uh, you know you're doing such a wonderful service and I think the whole message behind all this is just we're circling the wagons and all the kindred spirits are finding each other. And that's what this is all about this time here. Wonderful. Oh, perfect parting words today. Uh, love you guys. And uh, get out there and grow something. Get your hands dirty if you can today. Cheers.